Welcome to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Provenance, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. My name is Drew Griffin. I'm the managing editor here at Provenance. I have with me today a special guest, the founding editor of Provenance, one of the founding co-editors of Provenance, and the executive director of the Philos Project, Robert Nicholson. The Philos Project's a nonprofit organization that seeks to promote positive Christian engagement in the Middle East. Robert holds a BA in Hebrew studies from Binghamton University and a JD and an MA in Middle Eastern history from Syracuse University, and Robert, I guess, technically is also my boss. So, Robert, it is you're, you're a brilliant mind. It's so good to have you here. Thank you, Drew. It's great to be here. Um, I wanted to have you on specifically kind of to talk about uh, an issue that you've written a lot about, an issue that's, that seems to be perennially in the news and just never seems to go away, and that's the uh, issue of, I guess, violence against the Jewish people and the issue of anti-Semitism. Um, we've seen, uh, and I kind of want to get your kind of perspective on this, a, an apparent rise in an- anti-Semitism over the years. In, in 2017, the Anti-Defamation League showed that there was a 57% increase in the United States of uh, kind of hate crime and religious violence against Jews in, in 2018, last year, just last October, we had the massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, where 11 people were, were killed and, and, and shot there by um, Robert Bowers, who proclaimed as he was gunning them down, he wanted to kill all the Jews. Uh, the FBI reports that even though Jews, you know, compose 2% of the population here in the United States, they get more hate crimes than any other religious group. So there seems to be, uh, over the last several years, a- an increase in hatred towards the Jewish people, an increase in anti-Semitism. So I want to dig down kind of deep and talk a little bit about, first, kind of what anti-Semitism is, and then kind of get your perspective of why, no matter how, quote-unquote, progressive society becomes, it never seems to go away. So tell us a little bit about, first, kind of what is is a, a good standard definition of anti-Semitism? So there are a number of definitions for anti-Semitism. The Anti-Defamation League, which you mentioned, has a definition. The Holocaust Museum has a definition. Uh, they all, I think, skirt around the issue. My definition is any unjust word or deed aimed at the Jewish people, which is, which is rather broad. Um, and I would say that it includes, or it may include, the denial of Jewish identity, Uh, equality or security. It can also include refusing the Jewish nation a rightful place in the community of nations, denying their nationhood, or even challenging the Jewish right to live at peace in their homeland. So it's for sure a form of prejudice, a form of racism that's not unlike many other forms of racism and prejudice. You pick a group in the world, there's another group that has some kind of bias against it. And so bias against the Jews, uh, some of it can be chalked up to just standard uh, prejudices between different groups of people. But anti-Semitism is also a very unique hatred, and it has spiritual and cultural roots that go back really to the ancient world. There's a great book uh, by David Nirenbaum called uh, Anti-Judaism, and some others uh, that that make the same case, really showing how this this animosity, this hostility toward the Jews goes far beyond uh, Hitler in history. It goes even before Christianity. It goes back to the ancient world. And you use the word perennial. I think it's, I think it's the right word. Anti-Semitism is for sure something that you can count on in history. It keeps popping up in different places, among different groups, different religions. And I would say that over and above the standard prejudice against the Jewish people, 
there is also a hostility toward what the Jewish people represent. There is a hostility toward what the Jewish people brought into the world. And I've, I've written about this. I wrote a piece at Providence uh, for the new year where I tried to really dig deeper into what drives anti-Semitism. And I, and I, I would make the case that really a lot of what uh, anti-Semites are reacting to is this idea of the Hebraic tradition. So whether you know it or not, the Jewish people caused a revolution in world history. When they gave their book to the world, when they gave the Bible to the world, a book that makes all kinds of grandiose claims, let's be honest, about not only a you know one God who has a certain standard of morality for the world, but also makes a claim about Jewish chosenness. The Jews gave a book to the world that says, we are special. And some people, uh, both Jews and also Christians, have embraced that book, have embraced that message, the ideas, the values, the stories, and they believe that that book contains the, the transcendent truth of all truths. But there are other people, um, and they may come from a variety of different backgrounds and different religions, for whom that book is either uh, a flat-out lie or it's corrupted or, it's at the, or some kind of sinister plot by the Jews to get a leg up on everyone else. Now, people don't think about all of these things consciously, but it's, it's really the thread that binds a lot of this anti-Semitism that you see. You see it among far-right nationalist groups. You see it among far-left uh, progressives and socialists. You see it in the Soviet Union. You see it among South American Marxists. You see it in the Middle East among Muslims. You see it in the church. You see it among Christians. And I think the thing that is, is uniting all of them is some kind of reaction against Jewish chosen chosenness, Jewish particularism, and for, for a lot of people, even for the message, for, for Jewish morality, for this idea of a God who holds the world accountable. Now, that's, that's going very deep, and it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, that, that won't go unchallenged by some people. But I think when you really dig deep and you try to understand what is it that unites all of these different uh, movements together, it's this, this deeper reaction against uh, what the Jewish people represent and what they, what they brought to the world. So you gave us a good, broad, and comprehensive definition of what anti-Semitism is. Uh, there would be some pushback, though, I think, on the part of a lot of people who are accused of anti-Semitism uh, when they, you know, let's say crit critique Israeli policies or critique uh, the Israeli uh, nation state or you know, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu or, or the U.S. support for Israel. Or there are a number of individuals out there who engage in political critique that are automatically kind of um, – uh, accused of anti-Semitism. One such person that is definitely in the news recently and has been basically since she got elected to Congress is Representative Ilan Omar uh, from Minnesota. She's a Democratic freshman uh, congresswoman uh, who's uh, elected and has had several statements uh, which have been labeled as anti-Semitic. And, you know, she simply claims that, hey, I'm just questioning the prevalence of the uh, you know, Israeli, Israeli kind of lobbying effort within Congress, uh, the kind of assumed uh, on, uh, uh, support of uh, Democrats and Republicans for the, the nation of Israel. I represent a certain constituency. My certain constituency has some concerns about this. I'm raising these concerns. And she's immediately kind of labeled as an, you know, anti-Semite. Would what you know, Elon Omar engages in be described as anti-Semitism? Is there a difference between political discourse and criticism and anti-Semitism? You know, uh, how do those two things kind of relate to one another? Uh, 
I would say that what Congresswoman Ilan Omar has done, what she said, would fall under the, the definition of anti-Semitism for me because Ilhan Omar is playing into and actually mobilizing some of the most common anti-Jewish tropes in history, both in the Christian world and also in the Muslim world. And what is she saying? Essentially, um, in all of her statements, that Jews have some kind of nefarious plot. They have uh, extraordinary power that they are using to manipulate the American people, the American political system to support their nation state in the Middle East, the state of Israel. This idea, this idea that the Jews are really in control, they control the media, they control the government, you know, you, you can't see them, but they're there. There's this, you know, some people um, think they control the banking system. There, there's a number of iterations of this Jewish cabal uh uh, idea, but they're all they're all the same. And what's interesting about this is that people on both the far right and the far left agree. So you'll find people the exact opposite of Ilhan Omar, a white American from the South who would basically say the same thing: the Jews control the media, the Jews control the politics. They're they're ruining our country. We need to get rid of them. This is this is a, a common theme throughout history. And what Ilhan Omar didn't do was criticized in any kind of fair way, or certainly any targeted way, the policies of the state of Israel. Look, the state of Israel is a state. Uh, you can talk about Ireland, you can talk about Pakistan, you can talk about Kenya, and say, you know what, this state uh, is making a mistake on this or that policy. I disagree with it. It's not in American, the American interest. It's not maybe in the Kenyan interest that they have this policy. That kind of discussion about the state of Israel is quite fair and actually welcomed. I think if you if you go to Israel, if you speak to Israelis, you'll realize that they are some of the most critical uh, people you'll ever meet in terms of uh, criticisms of Israeli policy, all over the map on any number of issues. But for some reason, Israel is the only state uh, in which people not only talk about uh, policy, but they talk about legitimacy. What Ilhan Omar is really saying is that Israel and this entire Jewish state idea is illegitimate. It doesn't have the right to exist. And why do I think she's saying that? Because she's not saying this about any other country in the world. There's so many lobbies in Washington, D.C. for any number of issues, any number of countries, the Gulf countries, uh, the NRA, the, the American Medical Association. There's a million lobbies. Lobbyists are not anything new. And uh, people like Congresswoman Omar are not calling into question any of the lobbyists. And by the way, they're not calling into question any of the other states. Do we care that the UAE, for example, or Saudi Arabia or Qatar have lobbies in, the, in, the, in Washington, D.C.? No. And, and no one would ever say Qatar doesn't have the right to exist. But lots of people say that the Jewish state uh, shouldn't exist. And so what she's doing, I think, is uh, singling out one people uh, in the world, one country in the world, and saying, this country is extra bad. This country is extra sinister. It is trying to derail the American political system. And in doing so, she's, she's repeating what people have been saying long before the state of Israel was ever founded. And that is that Jews have too much power and we need to stop them. 
other than the you know kind of deep uh, philosophical and theological um, underpinnings of anti-Semitism that you alluded to, and kind of your first uh, answer, kind of giving a definition, uh, the the recent increase and in rise in anti-Semitism, especially in the United States and in Europe. I mean, what would you kind of attribute that to? Because it's it, you can't peg it on one the rise of one particular party or one particular group. Because to your one of your points that you made earlier, you can you have people on the right, you have people on the left. Both can engage in anti-Semitism. Like in Europe, for instance, in Sweden, sixty percent of Jews in Sweden are afraid of self-identifying as Jews because they're afraid of of kind of persecution. And yet, Swedish is one of the most leftist, liberal, progressive states in all of Europe. Uh, you go to Hungary, uh, which is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. You've got people that are, you know, 51% of Jews in Hungary are afraid of kind of self-identifying as Jews because they fear persecution. You go to France, another kind of progressive state um, where uh, Muslims are kind of increasing in, in the population. You have uh, 51% there in France when they are less than 1% of the population Jews, they, they won't self-identify as, as, as being Jews. Um, so it's, it doesn't matter whether it's left, it doesn't matter whether it's right, it doesn't matter whether it's Christian or nationalist or Muslim. It seems like anti-Semitism seems to just be this strain, and it seems to be kind of on the rise and on the increase in recent years. And one of the early kind of uh, myths about anti-Semitism was that following the Holocaust, that anti-Semitism kind of disappeared, right? That is, you know, after this horrible, uh, extreme kind of example of, of hatred where you have literally millions of Jews liquidated that somehow anti-Semitism kind of disappeared from the public square and that we've somehow become more and more progressive and more and more acceptable and pluralistic as uh, a society. And yet we see this rise in violence and hatred and against the Jewish people across the ideological spectrum. What you know, is it kind of a, a deep uh, religious, spiritual kind of root there? Are there political realities that are driving it, nationalist realities in some cases that are driving it? What are what are some of the causes of this this recent rise? So I think I think it's it's interesting what you're pointing out, and that it's 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 common across the board. It's not limited to any one side of the political spectrum, any one party, any one country. And I think that the first the first thing I would say is that Jews make good scapegoats. Jews, unlike most minority communities in the world are scattered in many different countries. They are a very small minority, and they happen to be, as a rule, rather successful, at least in the modern times. They tend to uh, you know, have very coherent communities. Their people tend to be rather professional, highly educated. They tend to uh, accrue wealth in whatever country that they're in, at least uh, these days. And so people see this, um, you know, well-off minority that is, you know, scattered among a variety of different countries who they know have loyalties that supersede any given state in which they live. And they think, you know what, all of the problems that we have in our society, maybe they are, they can be attributed to the Jews. You know, they don't actually belong here anyway. And they seem to be doing uh, quite well. We are suffering for any number of reasons, uh, could be economic reasons, could be political reasons. And for the capitalists, the Jews become communists. For the communists, the Jews become capitalists. Everywhere they go, they are used as the other. They are, on them, are, 
are heaped all of the grievances of any given society. And you see this a lot in the Muslim world. You know, the the governments, the political systems in most of the countries in the region are a disaster. And so when the people start to complain, when the people start to take to the streets and demand that their rulers do more for them, what do their rulers do? They blame things on the Jews. They blame things on Israel. Before Israel was founded, they would blame things on Jews who were living in those very countries. The Jews are uh, easy to blame. And so I think there's just something about the Jewish people as this global minority that makes it that makes them very vulnerable to to attacks from for, for various from various people for various reasons. But I think it's I think it's a little bit different in uh, the Eastern European case and let's say the Western European case. In the Eastern European case, and I'm speaking very generally here, uh, what you see is a kind of anti-Semitism that comes with a rise in nationalism and sometimes even a kind of religious nationalism. You see it in Hungary, you see it in the Balkans, you see it a little bit in Poland. Um, and really what's happening there is these are, these are countries that have emerged not all that long ago from this universal uh, communist system under the Soviet Union. These are countries that are trying to go back to their national patrimony. They're trying to get back to a certain kind of independence, a certain kind of security in their identity. They're trying to go back to the days before the Soviet Union. Jews are perceived in some of those countries by, by, by some of those people as uh, the, the very people who, who made their lives miserable. They were the people who supported communism. They were the people who still have some kind of you know, globalist agenda. George Soros, certainly in Hungary, is kind of the poster child for this. Here's a Jewish man who lives uh, outside of Hungary, who's Hungarian by, by birth, but who has, in, in the minds of the people there, some kind of globalist aspiration. He wants to erase the borders. He wants to uh, kind of dilute the Hungarianness of the country. And so they see him as part of... A, a, a sort of worldwide plot to impose another imperial system, to impose another sort of socialist or communist system. And so Jews, in this case, also are seen as obstacles to reclaiming uh, that kind of nationhood, that purity of Hungarian culture, that purity of Polish culture. I think in the case of a place like Poland, there's also the memory of the Holocaust. And it's a mix of both guilt and self-justification, saying... You know, they've been told for years that Poland was complicit in the Holocaust. Everybody knows that millions of Jews died on Polish soil. And yet Poles, many of them are saying, okay, we hear you, but it's not, it's not just our fault. You can't blame us for this. And they feel attacked by what they perceive to be some kind of Jewish lobby. And so some of them go on the offensive and go to the far right extreme and start embracing some of these old Christian and non-Christian uh, anti-Semitic tropes. In Western Europe, and I would say you mentioned Sweden, I think especially in, in a place like Sweden, much of it is being driven by Muslim immigration. Let's be honest. Anti-Semitism is a crippling problem in the Muslim world. The vast majority of Muslims um, believe in some form or another uh, the, the, the most basic set of anti-Semitic principles. Again, Jews are controlling everything. Jews and imperialists have, have planted Israel in the Middle East to sort of block Arab or Muslim aspirations. This has been going on for, for over 100 years. And Israel is, is 
the same as the Jewish people. And as these these people, as, as Muslims leave uh, the Middle East and move into Western Europe, and as their numbers grow, they bring a lot of these attitudes with them. Of course, they often meet up with people maybe from the far left or the far right in any given country, and it's one of the few things that Muslims and uh, you know native nativist people can agree on is that the Jews are the common problem, and it could be the Jews living in the Middle East in the state of Israel, or it could be the Jews who are running the media or the politics or the banking of the society. And I think that in Sweden, for example, the Muslim population, I think it's it's the highest percentage in in Western Europe. And so, to me, it's really no surprise that there is a correlation between that and uh, a, an explosion of anti-Semitism, a feeling of fear on the part of the Jewish community. And what is happening is that Jews are leaving Western Europe. Many Jews are moving to Israel or moving uh, westward to the United States. I think the United States, I would make the argument, is has has been different, even though we've been we've had our share of anti-Semitism in this country. Uh, even in the last century, Jews were not allowed to belong to certain clubs or certain uh, societies. But I think America, and this is maybe a, a speculative claim, but I think it's true, insofar as America was consciously founded on the Hebraic tradition in a way that was very unique uh, and different from Europe. Uh, it was consciously founded on these Old Testament principles. It was it was very overtly a biblical nation, certainly at the beginning. I think that we've, in some ways, inoculated ourselves to some of that anti-Jewish prejudice because we've seen ourselves, for better or for worse, as another chosen people, as another exceptional nation. And it was even stated explicitly uh, by some of the, 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 Pur- the Puritans, the early founders, that America is sort of a new Israel. And so it's, again, it's unconscious, or it's subconscious, and it, and it sort of moves at the level of culture. But I think it's, I think it's why Americans have been, on the whole, uh, less prone to anti-Semitism why America has been the freest society for the Jewish people in history up until now, and why America displays across the board, across the political spectrum, a strong proclivity to the state of Israel. Most Americans can't put their finger on it, but they look at the Jews, they look at uh, the Jewish state, and they're thinking, you know, there's something connecting us. There's some kind of lineage that we share, and we're kind of on the same side of this. So America, I think, is different. Uh, That could be changing. And I think this this is what we're seeing with some of the statistics you mentioned at the outset is that as our culture fragments, as belief in the biblical God becomes uh, statistically less common, I think some of the safeguards that we've built into our society start to get eroded. And that's a cause of deep concern. So we live in a culture of victimhood, right? I mean, we are surrounded by uh, any number of minorities that are claiming some level of victimization, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, ethnic minorities or African-Americans or Latinos or immigrants or uh, LGBT or, you know, any there, – there are no shortage of uh, groups that are in the minority that are claiming some level of persecution and some level of victimization – and there obviously is a tendency if you know Jews stand up and say, "Hey, we're victims of anti-Semitism, and this is you know particularly acute, and maybe we've got a leg up on this because this is one of the oldest you know uh, gripes in, in human history. We've been persecuted for five thousand years, so you know maybe we're the we're the originators of of kind of uh, being victims. Like how you know it, Providence exists to 
equip the American mind to engage the real world. So you're looking at a whole host of, of real gripes and, and real claims, trying to discern and sort out uh, legitimate victims from uh, those who are just maybe victims for political purposes and like how what makes uh, anti-Semitism unique and why should we care? Like, I mean, why not just say, well, you know what? A lot of people are victimized. A lot of different groups are victimized. A lot of minorities are victimized. If, as a Christian in America, why should I care? Uh, as a, you know, uh, conservative in America, why should I care? You know, it's, it's just one group among many. I feel really bad for them, but I feel really bad for a lot of people. You know, what, what makes it any different or why should I care more about that than I do about anything else? Jewish people have historically been something of a canary in the coal mine. And, you know, I've, I've, yeah, I've heard it said in different ways that as go the Jews, so goes the country. And I think that, and this is something I wrote for the piece I did at, at Providence at the beginning of the year, is that anti-Semitism starts with the Jews, but the hatred that drives anti-Semitism never ends there. And so if you have a concern about minorities, about vulnerable people in any given society, and by that I mean people who are different, they're not part of the nation. They're not part of the, the consensus. They're kind of on the margins. Any, any group like that um, will have an interest in seeing anti-Semitism stopped in a society because the Jews are just where people start. They get to all of those other groups eventually. What I wrote actually in the piece, I said, these three evils, uh, resentment of particularism, rejection of morality, Denial of responsibility are prompted by and initially aimed at the Jewish people, but it doesn't take long for them to be directed at others. Eventually, anti-Semitism leads to monolithic, amoral, and irresponsible societies that are bitter at the world and eager for violence. So what I would say is that if we care about minorities in general, then anti-Semitism absolutely needs to be something we worry about because this is just the beginning. It's a barometer of where societies are at. And I would say, with respect to the question you asked, uh, why should we care, I, I would give a number of, of reasons why we should care. First of all, I think you know, anti-Semitism, contrary to the myth that you, that you mentioned, that anti-Semitism after the Holocaust is gone, uh, no, it's, it's still quite current. In fact, it's, it's on the rise. As the memory of the Holocaust fades, as that generation dies off, anti-Semitism is going to come back and be arguably just as strong or stronger as it's ever been. And so I think that insofar as we believe the Jewish people worthy of our concern, just in general, anti-Semitism is something that we should care about. It is a major threat to the Jewish people today, not just uh, around, you know, in their communities around the world, but, but also uh, in the state of Israel. I would say for Christians, and most of the readers of Providence are Christians of one form or another, Anti-Semitism is also a threat to Christians in particular and to Christianity. It's no mistake that people like, on one hand, Sayyid Qutb, who was the intellectual father of the Muslim Brotherhood, and on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, Friedrich Nietzsche, who was sort of the forefather of postmodernism, uh, both agreed, even though they never talked about it, that Christianity is just the Jewish plot, you know, kicked up to the to the tenth power. It is, the, it is the logical conclusion of this, of this Jewish idea, and insofar as Christianity has become the world's largest religion and the religion of the most powerful part of the world, that is the West, Christianity is a colonizing, imperializing force that needs to be opposed and needs to be stopped. 
It's not just Muslims that think that. It's people who live in our own society, who see the West uh, as a threat to all of the other peoples in the world, because not only are they colonizing uh, the places of the world and the states of the world through military intervention, et cetera, but they're also, in some sense, colonizing the minds of the world through this uh, belief in the in the God of the Bible. And so I think that if you know people who don't recognize the the Hebraic foundations of Christianity, the ultimate Jewishness of our faith, are missing what people like Kutub and Nietzsche already saw a hundred years ago. It's a, it's a mistake to think that uh, the Jews are isolated and hey, you know, if if they do it to the Jews, they're not gonna they're not gonna mess with us. We're next. We're we're next. And any one of these uh, situations, whether it's in the Middle East or in the West, first go the Jews, then go the Christians. So it's in our own interest as Christians to see this stops. And I think that ultimately anti-Semitism introduces, as I said, a certain level of of hatred, of bitterness, of in some cases violence, and, and therefore instability into any society. If you have people in a society looking at other people in a society and saying, they're the enemy, those people are trying to undermine the whole project, you're going to have unstable societies. You're going to have countries that are teetering on the brink of revolution or collapse. And I think you see that historically. You see a lot of cases in the West and in the East where, you know, attacks on the Jews preceded various political upheavals. And I think that today is no different. And if we want stable societies, both here in the United States, but also abroad, we will we will see the elimination of anti-Semitism as directly in our interests. So we've talked about what it is, and we've talked about why it matters. Uh, are there specific steps that you know you're taking? You're the executive director and founder of this this Philos Project, which is this um, uh, kind of educational organization that's meant to foster you know positive Christian engagement in the Middle East, which would include obviously like Israel and the Jewish community. Uh, but are, are there things that you guys are doing in particular to not just like? Out, you know, call out anti-Semitism as bad, but actually promote engagement, pluralism, um, you know, and, and a positive view of uh, Semitic culture and, and Jew, Jews in general. Yeah, so that's, I think, ultimately the best way to fight anti-Semitism is to double down on Semitism, which is, a, which is a very clumsy way of saying the Hebraic tradition, which is the stuff that kind of makes up our religion. It's the thing that people hate, actually. And I think that the more that we understand the historical connection, the cultural connection between Christians and Jews, between America and Israel, I think the better we'll be equipped to, to push back, not in a just a negative way, you know, fighting anti-Semitism. Okay, anti-anti-Semitism is kind of a weird term. It's a little bit redundant. I think we need to really understand what it is that anti-Semites are responding to and embrace it and, 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 and go deeper on it, make it, make it much broader. So the Philos Project is trying to do a number of things educationally that fall in that category, trying to help people in our network understand uh, these deeper issues. Uh, but we're also trying to do things at a much more practical level. So we have a statement uh, responding to anti-Semitism that is, is, is out, and we are asking people to go to our website, philosproject.org, to sign this statement and to share it with their friends so that people can uh, begin to rally around this idea and see it as something that actually affects them as Americans, as Christians, as people who care about 
uh, the Jewish people. Uh, we're also doing a number of things trying to bring this message into churches. And so if you go to our website, you'll see that we have a resource packet uh, that you can not only read yourself, but bring to your pastor, to your priest, and say, this is something I want to bring into my church. I want to be the force here locally to help educate others about what's happening. And so go to our website. You'll see a number of things there uh, that are designed as practical tools to, to bring this message uh, to the streets, as it were. And I think also uh, everybody who's listening to this should see themselves individually, personally, as an agent for change. You know, it sounds sort of cliche and, and trite, but, you know, there are Jewish people in your community. Uh, something very easy, very small that people can do is to, you know, I was going to say open the phone book, but nobody has those anymore. Uh, go online. You're find dating the, yourself. Right? I'm dating myself. <laughs> I actually delivered phone books uh, once upon a time when I was a teenager. Uh, and but, look at you now. It's and look at me a, yeah. now. Look at me now. Uh, but go online. Find the, the where is the Jewish community in your, in your town, in your city, or in your state. I guarantee you, you can find a synagogue, you can find a temple, you can find a Jewish community center. Pick up the phone uh, or write an email. Let them know, hey, I'm, a, I'm in your community. You don't know me. I'm a Christian. I've been hearing more and more about anti-Semitism. It's deeply concerning to me. And I just want to let you know, I'm standing with you. That's it. Sign your name. That little step, that that small uh, gesture, it, it means more than you know, because the Jewish people, uh, I'm, I'm sure you know, and people know, they see themselves, even though they're, it's, the, the irony is that they're accused of being so powerful and so influential, but the Jewish people themselves see themselves as very much uh, a fragile people, you know, always in any given generation on the brink of, of being eliminated. It's sort of built into the, 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 the myth of, of the Jewish people. And they are very aware that they're a vulnerable uh, community, especially living in some of these places where anti-Semitism is on, on the rise. And so getting a call like that, getting an email like that, it goes a long way to make them feel like, okay, we have allies here. We have, we have friends in this society. We're not alone. I've been speaking with Robert Nicholson, the co-editor and founding editor of Provenance, and we've been discussing anti-Semitism. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit with you, Robert, about the upcoming Israeli election, some of the latest news regarding Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, we'll discuss that when we come back. Provcast, our regular podcast of Providence, Journal of Christianity and American Foreign Policy. I'm managing editor Drew Griffin, and I've been speaking to uh, co-founding editor Robert Nicholson, uh, who is also the executive director of the Philos Project, which is a Christian organization that uh, fosters positive Christian engagement in the Middle East. And Robert has spent a number of years traveling throughout the Middle East and probably innumerable trips to uh, Israel. And so I thought he would be a, a perfect person to talk to uh, regards to the upcoming Israeli election, which has been kind of thrown into uh, chaos. So I think it'd be great to kind of talk a little bit about this. This hasn't gotten a lot of um, news coverage lately, mainly because there's been a lot of other things going on in the news. Uh, but U.S. and Israeli relations are important. Uh, prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is trying and vying to become the longest-serving uh, prime minister, I think, um, 
in Israeli history. And so on April 9th, you've got 6 million uh, eligible Israeli voters who are going to go to the polls and choose between 46 different competing parties they're running uh, in the elections to uh, fill the Israeli Knesset. And uh, just recently, just within uh, the past couple of weeks, a lot of the certainty of the outcomes of that election has been thrown into uh, chaos by the announcement of the Israeli Attorney General of uh, the potential filing of uh, indictments against uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, which has thrown his political future into chaos. And so arguably then throws, I think, the uh, relationship between the United States and President Trump and Israel into a certain amount of uh, confusion. So Robert, if you could just, you know, for a lot of people, it's hard for us to even conceive of 46 different parties running in a a tiny little country, you know, the size of New Jersey. Um, And it's a little bit of a black box kind of politically. We don't maybe understand what's going on. Can you lay out a little bit for us just a bird's eye view of the political realities there, maybe what Netanyahu is facing and like maybe prognosis for his future. Yes, it's black box chaos. You can use any number of words to describe Israeli politics. I myself, every day I'm, you know, realizing how much I don't know. It's, It's truly, it is, you know, everybody in Israel talks about politics. You can be not only at the level of government, but you can be the cab driver, you can be the garbage man. And he, you know, everybody wants to know what's happening today. They're all listening to the radio, they're reading the paper. Politics dominates uh, life in Israel, domestic politics. And Benjamin Netanyahu, so he is, as you said, uh, the longest serving prime minister. He has been in office since 2009. People are going to miss Bibi, as he's known, uh, when he's gone. He is he is iconic. He has navigated Israel through really some of the most tumultuous security um, situations that that they've ever faced. Uh, with uh, the rise of Iranian expansion and aggression, Bibi has done phenomenal things to open up relations with the Arab world. Uh, things are happening uh, in Israel. Uh, that have never happened before. Relationships with Saudi Arabia, with Egypt, with Jordan, with the UAE, with Qatar, just with Russia, with, with Russia actually, as well. Yeah. And so Bibi has done phenomenal things. And he, when he dies, God forbid, he will have a tremendous state funeral. He will be, he is one of the most legendary uh, leaders in Israeli history, bar none. But at this point, People are really sick of Bibi. Everybody, even people who are part of his party, kind of want him to just go away. It's been uh, 10 years this year that he's been in office. I think people are just a little sick of looking at him. They're a little sick of the shenanigans that that he's pulled politically. Um, they're kind of sick of his, his family, uh, rightly or wrongly. His wife is kind of a notoriously uh, loathed person within Israel. His son... Uh, makes a lot of noise on social media, and people are just kind of fed up. And what that's led to are a number of attempts uh, coming from all different angles to to get rid of him, to get him out of power. Some of those have been legal attempts, and so there have been a number of investigations. There are a few cases that are open right now against BB that that all have to do with some form of, let's call it uh, corruption or payoffs or, or things like that, misusing power to get better media coverage. It's, it's not important. These cases are open. The indictment is, is forthcoming uh, from the attorney general. And you're right. It has thrown the political future into chaos because even though people are sick of looking at him, 
if you ask Israelis, well, who do you imagine as his successor? Who else could lead Israel? You usually get a blank stare because there's not an obvious uh, uh, replacement for Bibi. He is so iconic, and people in Israel living in a bad neighborhood, they they kind of want to go with a sure thing. He's done. He's done well. He's gotten through the Obama years, which were seen as bad years for Israel. He's really established, a, a, you know, a bromance with President Trump. He's done all this stuff in the Arab world, and so uh, people are. I think when it comes time to vote there's a good chance that they will actually vote him in again. And so trying to find the next Bibi has been really the, the quest for many uh, Israeli politicians over the last few years. Um, in recent months, recent weeks, uh, it was announced that there is a new coalition uh, where you know some of the odds and ends of the Israeli political elite came together. People who on their own wouldn't have a shot in unseating Bibi but who together actually may be able to accomplish it. Uh, and it was uh, two military figures, Benny Gantz and uh, Moshe Yalon, and a well-liked uh, former Israeli TV personality and somebody who's sort of on the, on the left, as it were, a guy named Yair Lapid. They came together. They established this blue and white coalition. They are just as hawkish as Bibi. Uh, you have to be to be elected in Israel these days. Uh, there's nobody who's... Uh, you know, a total dove in Israeli politics, nobody who has a shot of ruling, that is. And so this new coalition, the Blue and White Coalition, is very hawkish. They are saying almost the exact same things on security as Bibi is, but they're new faces, they're fresh faces, and they're promising to come in uh, to sort of get rid of all of the political gamesmanship that Bibi is known for engaging in and kind of starting fresh. You know, it's been 10 years. We're coming in. Fresh start for Israel. We'll keep you safe. Don't worry about that. We're not going to change any of that. But we're going we're gonna to do, do some new leadership. Um, they, they are, uh, in some sense, and it's hard to talk right and left in Israeli politics, but they are, you can almost say that they're kind of on the left of Bibi in a certain kind of way. To the right of Bibi, um, is uh, are a number of other parties. Um, one of his greatest opponents has been uh, a gentleman named Naftali Bennett. Naftali Bennett is essentially the politician best known for representing the settler movement, representing the idea that Israel should control uh, in some form or another the West Bank or what they call Judea and Samaria. And Naftali Bennett, he's been engaged in his own kind of political games recently. He left his old party, uh, called the Jewish Home Party, and uh, built his own coalition called the New Right, in which he's bringing together a number of uh, politicians to the right of Bibi. And to the right of that is is a group that also uh, shares uh, Naftali Bennett's uh, desire for the West Bank, but is it going even further uh, and even bringing in some, uh, honestly, some, some kind of racist uh, political groups uh, to bolster their political odds? So it's really all up in the air. People ask me a lot, is it possible that Bibi will be unseated? Politically, it's still it's still hard to imagine that these other coalitions will get enough support to, 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 to unseat Bibi. I think he still has a great shot of forming the next coalition government. It's a parliamentary system, and so they work sort of like the UK. I think even if he loses some seats, I think he'll still have the kind of power. But these, these pending indictments these pending court cases are going to make uh, things very difficult. It's hard to imagine Bibi being in power, a sitting prime minister who is 
basically, um, you know, not only under investigation as he has been, but actually fighting it out in the court on corruption charges. It seems like BB is going to have to take a step back. I don't, I don't see him being uh, able to maintain the same level of power and control that he has now. The only question remaining is what that he, what that means. Does he, you know, so he forms a coalition? Does he sort of take a step back? Does he share the prime ministership with one of these other groups and with, you know, through some sort of political deal? It's uh, something that happens in Israeli politics. They'll, they'll kind of make a bargain. Well, okay, let's, we'll band together. Uh, I'll rule for the first few years. You'll rule for the second. Something like that could happen. But there's no question that these these indictments, these court cases are really going to, to shake up his world and with it, Israeli politics. Now, Everybody knows that Bibi has a strong relationship with Trump. If Bibi takes a step back, if he's unseated or if he loses power in some way, will that affect the America-Israel relationship? I don't think so. The only person who's calling for a reassessment of U.S.-Israel relations in some way is Naftali Bennett, who I mentioned, who's to the right of Bibi. He's, his argument is that President Trump is trying to impose a peace deal is trying to give the Palestinians more than they deserve, more than it, than is in uh, Israel's uh, security interests, and so he's calling. He this is one of the ways that he criticizes and he goes after after Bibi. He says that you know you're you're so close with Trump that you're willing to take any peace deal that he offers. I'm not that way. I won't sell out. I won't sell out the people of Israel. We need to we need to protect ourselves. I'm stronger than you, which is a strong uh, argument. In Israeli politics, so I think, with the exception of Bennett, you know, the other parties, no one's really trying. No one would change much if they came into power. If if this blue and white coalition came in, I don't think that much would change. I think, in in fact, they would do their best to take Bibi's place to really warm up to Trump, in the same way that he has. Trump's very very popular in Israel across the board. Um, People want to maintain that relationship. They feel loved right now. They want to keep it that way. It's funny. I have. In looking at uh, Netanyahu's kind of response, and even though there's a great amount of fatigue with him domestically among Israelis, and he has been in office for ten years, and he is um, kind of you know rightly or wrongly kind of the the uh, you know poster child for Israel abroad. I mean, you can't have an election in the United States where you have a debate, especially on the in the Republican Party for the last you know ten years, where candidates are in a race to mention Bibi faster than others. Right? It has to be Bibi too. Can be Netanyahu. They've they. They've, they've met with him. They've shaken his hand, and, and they're on you know um, uh, abbreviated name basis, you know, with him a BB nickname basis. And um, he probably doesn't have nicknames for them. He probably doesn't even know who the candidates are. But they're going to call him BB, and so I mean, he's obviously going to be that presence. And so I mean, I think he feels that um, that that kind of power and that kind of influence. And what's kind of been ironic, and there have been some writers that have begun to kind of uh, draw uh, illustrations between you've got two characters in, in Trump and in uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, both of which now are under investigation, both of which have certain amounts of, of legal clouds and criticism kind of surrounding them, but both of which are adopting basically the same political strategy, which is to double down, to call it fake news, to say, I'm not going anywhere. Hey, what really matters is I'm effective. I've been effective for a long time keep me in office. And this, what's interesting to me is, you know, to what extent 
you know, Israel could be a barometer here of that strategy is to, you know, after April 9th, what happens to Bibi, right? You know, if he is in fact indicted, if in fact these, uh, uh, you know, he has to go through a legal process or go through the courts, you know, what happens to him politically? And if that strategy works, if it works in Israel, is it going to work here in the United States? Because you see Donald Trump basically playing out that same exact strategy. They're mirroring one another. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how that plays out in Israel, then how that plays out for Trump, because he's going to be probably very much in, in similar circumstances uh, for the 20, um, 20 election. If the United States and people in the, uh, the United States look at Israel and they basically see Benjamin Netanyahu, what does it mean if he's no longer there? Like, what is it, you know, if, if Republican candidates aren't dropping BB, you know, in their, um, you know, uh, primary debates or, or Democrats aren't using him as a, as a straw man against, you know, uh, what's wrong with Israel is, is Benjamin Netanyahu. What is it, what is it going to mean domestically in the United States and politically, do you think, if that major figure, that lightning rod, is no longer there. I actually, I think very little will change. I think it's interesting. There was a Brookings poll uh, in, I think, 2016, late 2016, that asked Americans, um, world leaders that they admire most. And one of my favorite statistics ever is the subset of evangelical Christians who, uh, more than the Pope, surely, more than Barack Obama, yes, uh, but even more than Ronald Reagan, chose Benjamin Netanyahu as their most loved world leader, and not by a small margin. It was a significant number. The fact that they even know who the ruler of this small country is is amazing in itself. The fact that they place him above Ronald Reagan is kind of mind-blowing. So I think that people will will miss him. But look, I mean, Israel has been you know very close with the United States since before BB was around, Ehud Olmert, Ariel Sharon, Ehud Barak. There's been any number of people who have been iconic leaders of Israel that politicians were, you know, rushing to warm up to. The fact is the American people, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, have some kind of inclination toward Israel. And whoever's running the country, I think, will will be somebody that they that they that they care about, that they that they want to get to know. I think that uh, people who hate Israel will still hate Israel. I don't think the fact that Bibi goes uh, will make much of a difference. Um, but I do think that the uh, I think that I think that the the special relationship between Trump and Bibi, uh, if it's disrupted, it, it will be something. It'll be something of a hiccup. But you're right. I think it'll be interesting to see how these two people, how these two career paths, which are quite similar, as you mentioned, BB and, and Trump, will uh, kind of mimic the other or, or presage how the other's uh, career will go. We've been talking to Robert Nicholson, the executive director of the Philos Project. You can learn more about what he's doing over there at thephelosproject.org. Robert, thank you for being on. Thank you, Drew. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. <laughs>